All right. Good morning, y'all. I'm glad y'all are here in person in our uh, Museum District campus. I also am glad y'all are here online for our online campus, wherever you are in the world. We're glad you're part of the story today. Our Timber Grove campus has a live preacher. That man you just saw on the screen, um, Pastor Kale, is preaching live at Timber Grove today. So they don't, they don't have me on the screen. They have a, a live and in-person preacher today, which I'm sure they love. And Kale and I wrote today's message uh, together. It was it was a labor of love for both of us because it's a tough, tough topic today, one that we're not used to talking about as often as some other topics in the church. So we're going to get there in just a second. First, um, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story. And if we don't know each other yet, I hope to get the, the, the privilege of uh, knowing you soon. And um, if you're looking for a, a place to call your, your faith home, your spiritual home, I think The Story might be the place for you, especially if you like to ask deep questions and and if you're not afraid of, you know, doubts and, and inquiries and things like that about God, the Bible, about religion, about the church, uh, this is a good place to come with those. We take Jesus very seriously. We try not to take ourselves too seriously um, so that everybody knows they can come and, and ask their honest questions in pursuit of the truth. So in light of that, uh, we're going to get right to today's message. Y'all have study guides that you were given when you came in today. Those are always, I hope, useful, but especially so today as we're going to be uh, getting into some deep water today about a topic that, again, is not as familiar for us to discuss at church. And I think even the fact that I've already said that twice is an indictment on the church because um, we should talk about this, uh, this issue more often because everyone else is talking about this issue. Among young adults, 18 to 25, in a recent survey, this issue today was listed as the most important issue um, among young, I should say, qualify that, young non-religious adults. Today's issue is the most important global issue that we're facing today. Among young Christian adults, this issue didn't make the top five. I'm not saying either one's right or wrong. I'm just saying there's a communication gap that we need to try and shore up. And that's my hope with today's message. So this is part of a series called True or False. We're five weeks into this. This is part five of six. And um, what we're doing is tackling a different controversial claim every week. And we're starting with every message with uh, that week's online community survey. Y'all get to voice your opinion about that week's controversial claim. And we start with the community's vote, your community's opinion. Today's claim is Christians should care about climate change. Christians should care about climate change. So let's see the results of this week's online survey. We had a ton of people vote this week, and by far and away, the most popular answer is absolutely true, that Christians should absolutely care about climate change. 63% of y'all said that Christians should absolutely care about climate change. Let's go back to that again, uh, Aubrey, thank you. And then another 22% said, mostly true. So 85% of our congregation in Houston, Texas, no less, in a church that takes Jesus very seriously and takes the Bible very seriously, like in a, in a church that's been called, you know, like evangelical in, in, its, in its vibe, 85% of our community said it's true or mostly true that Christians should care about climate change. I will tell you, this result surprised me to no end. I told y'all last week 
when the whole church came together about how it's not a sin to drink alcohol. Remember that from last Sunday? I was like, there will never again come a day when the whole church agrees on some controversial subject, like you're agreeing about alcohol. You agreed about this almost to the same exact extent. And that first answer, the, most, the, the totally true answer, 63%, that's the highest number we've seen for any answer of any of our questions so far. So what's interesting about that to me is how it seems to fly in the face of the most uh, prevalent narrative in the, in the world about Christians like us. The dominant narrative, if you're listening to the, to the culture, to the, the world outside the church, is that Christians who take Jesus and the Bible seriously are less likely to take climate change seriously. Like we're the ones most uh, you know, prone to turn off our listening devices and our ears to, to the alarmism about the climate. And so clearly uh, this is a church that, that really challenges that assumption. This seems to be a church where you can, you know, hold fast to the promises of Scripture without abandoning, you know, what science is telling us. We can do both. We can store up our treasures in heaven without forsaking the health of the earth where we live. And that's what we should be going for. And so in some ways, I'm really, really proud to be a part of a, a church like this one. On the other hand, I know we got work to do because we do have that communication gap. And this is the first time I've ever talked about this in a sermon since I became a Christian. Before I was a Christian, I was a pastor and I was given a Methodist pulpit to preach in for 13 years before I really believed what Christians, just the basics of what Christians believe. And I did talk about it back then, I just wanna be clear. I preached a sermon series one time called The Big Oil Drill, Rape, Greed, and Profits. It was a real picker-upper, let me tell you. <clears throat> we showed Al Gore's inconvenient truth in the sanctuary of that church where I was preaching in those days, on Earth Day, I think it was. And, and just, it was well-intentioned, but it was just, you know, missing, you know, Jesus and stuff. So anyway, <laughs> um, but that doesn't excuse the fact that we haven't talked about this issue at, much at all at the story so far, and I own that as, uh, uh, you know, it's on me as much as, as anyone else because I get this platform by God's grace, and so we should use it to talk about things that really matter, and this really matters. Now, I think part of my reasoning for avoiding it is because the current climate around the climate issue is, uh, I think it's a little problematic, a little toxic, and I think it's a little bit uh, triggering for me. As a child, I grew up in the Bible Belt during the advent of the Left Behind series, where uh, apocalyptic alarmism was an everyday reality. I don't know if any of you have ever known the dread and the fear of being a teenage boy full of hormones and being told constantly that Jesus could come back at any moment and he better not catch you doing anything bad. <laughs> I'm a teenage boy. Like, so anyway, it's, it was traumatic, okay? So maybe some of the same themes I've picked up on in the um, current climate uh, care community, uh, maybe that has turned me off of this a little bit. That's no excuse. That's no excuse, but there's no denying that uh, both, are, both movements are similarly apocalyptic and often uh, obsessed with the end of the world. More on that uh, in just a moment. I wanna start um, by offering up four statements of fact 
I think, on which everyone can agree. I think it's good to find common ground. So whether you're a Christian or not, I'm glad you're here. And the four statements I'm going to offer up are what I'm going to call what statements. They're the what we believe. And by and large, I think we all agree on these four things. But the why we believe the what is where we deviate. There's a Christian why, I'm going to call it overgeneralized, the Christian why, and then I'm going to overgeneralize the secular why. I'm going to talk about the differences in motivation for believing in this what statement that we're going to talk about, all right? So this is, might be where the study guides um, come in handy. If you're online, there should be a link in the comments of the thread, whatever you're watching on, whatever platform. So the first what statement on which we all can agree, I think across the board, is that the earth is good. Talk to a Christian, the Christian will say the earth is good. Talk to a secular, agnostic, atheist, whatever, they'll say the earth is good. All right? So the, the Christian why, though, is a little different and distinct from what the secular why will be. Let's look at the Christian why first. Christians say the earth is good because it comes from God, and God is good. And not only did a good God make the earth, the good God who made the earth called the earth good. Not only very, and not only good, but very good. So Genesis chapter one, um, verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. Psalm 24, verse one says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So there is this message in Scripture that at its core, its essence is good. The earth, creation, is good because the one who made it is good, and that he called it good. So our belief in a good God and our belief that earth is good, a good place, those are inextricably bound beliefs. And absent the goodness of God and the edict that from God that earth is good, we wouldn't be so prone to think that earth is necessarily good. This is uh, just part of what makes, the, the, I think, the Christian worldview um, distinct, all right? So, and this should make sense to everyone, um, even if you're not a Christian, because everyone worships something or someone, and you're always going to be likely to call good whatever the one you're worshiping calls good. That's why they pay celebrities millions and millions of dollars to call things good, so the people worshiping those celebrities will also think they're good. LeBron James says this shoe is good. And 50 million kids go out and buy it the next day. And then the Lakers miss the playoffs. And then the kids have their hopes dashed, as every Laker fan should. Anyway, so I shouldn't talk. I'm a Rockets fan. So you get the idea. We, we, we look up to someone, and whatever they say is good, we believe is good. As Christians, we look up to, we think, the supreme being in the universe, God himself, who created everything, who said this is good. And so we are therefore compelled and convinced uh, by the belief that this is a good earth on which we live. That should be uh, pretty uh, obvious. But what is the secular why to this agreed upon what? So the secularist generally would say the earth is good, yes, but it's because the earth is all we have. The earth is good, because there's nowhere else to go. In spite of what Elon Musk says about Mars and stuff, that's several years away, all right? The earth better be good. Otherwise, look out. We have no hope. So the earth is good or else is kind of the narrative on uh, the, the secular side of this argument, all right? So we don't have to be grateful to any higher power. We don't have to, you know, they would say, like, make up any kind of divine, invisible father in the sky. We can just 
we can just know what we know. And the earth itself, for many secularists, would be the highest form of being that we know for sure. That's why the, the, I think the movement often borders on what we call like mother earth worship. <laughs> That's why that language so often creeps in to that movement. And it seems innocuous enough. I mean, why not think of the earth as a mother? The earth, after all, the seculars would say the earth provides for us, nourishes us, gives us food and water, sustenance, protection, shelter, provision. Isn't that what a mother does? And isn't the earth then the closest thing to a cosmic parent that we can really know for sure? I mean, you can see how that's a tempting thing to believe. But for Christians, this is a non-starter, y'all. The earth is not our mother, all right? The, the earth at most is like a little sister <laughs> that we're supposed to look after <laughs> because the earth is not alive with a consciousness or with vibrations or chakras. The earth is a created thing, an inanimate sort of object. It's a beautiful thing, a good thing, a very good thing. <clears throat> but to elevate the earth to the status of divine is to walk a very, very dangerous line that most people don't really see. And whenever I, I hear people talking to Mother Earth or praising Mother Earth, or even I've heard Christians, y'all, praying to Mother Earth, it seems harmless, but for example, this seminary that I found on Twitter, a couple of years, I follow them on Twitter, and I found a couple of years ago, they posted this from a chapel service where future church leaders bowed before a bunch of plants and confessed their sins to the plants. Now, what's the harm here? What harm could possibly uh, be done here? Well, <clears throat> the, moment this, uh, the, the reason this matters is that the moment we start putting created things in the place of their creator, we risk um, losing sight of what's real and what's true. It's like trying to build a whole house on a fractured foundation or trying to see everything through a lens that is fractured, right? You will eventually see everything in a distorted way, but the longer you look through that lens, the more you'll think that's what it really looks like. And so um, eventually you'll start calling evil good and Good, evil, and those lines will be blurred, and you'll start saying that something that really is hate is love, and something that love is hate, or even worse, you'll say something that's just sex is love, and love is sex, and, and, and you'll, you'll start to value things that are not to be valued and to despise things that are to be valued, like wholesomeness and innocence and purity, simplicity. You'll have trouble defining the simplest of terms when you look at the whole world through that fractured lens. You'll wind up like a lot of people in this movement that I've seen. You'll wind up in this weird, contradictory place where a family with six puppies is worthy of your Instagram, but a family with six children is just ick. Because puppies matter more than babies in a fractured worldview. This is the kind of thing that happens often when we uh, conflate the creator with the created things. Uh, Romans 1 and 2 talk a lot about that. I'm not going to get into it today, but if you want to dig deeper into that, I encourage you. 
um, to do that, all right? And if you're unaware of the deep, deep connections between uh, Mother Earth worship and uh, the abortion on demand movement, uh, I encourage you to do your homework. It's a lot there, a lot there. In a very uh, famous book called The Sacrament of Abortion, the author wrote, abortion is a sacrifice to Artemis, who was a pagan earth goddess. Abortion is a sacrament for the gift of life to remain pure. This is just another example of ways that worshiping something less than the creator will leave you deluded and deceived. So this is uh, an instance in which Christians and non-Christians agree on our what, the earth is good, but it's really the why that matters most. The why is what makes our what sustainable. The second what statement that we agree on is that uh, aside from the earth being good, we are responsible for it. We, human beings, are responsible for the earth, but why? Christians say that we are responsible because God made the earth and God made us in his image and God put us in charge of it. Chapter one of Genesis, verse 28 says, uh, uh, God blessed the humans that he made and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number. Never forget that God's first commandment to people was to do the thing we all love to do that makes more humans, all right? But the second commandment was fill the earth and subdue it, subdue it. Rule over the fish, and then he says all the other things you're supposed to rule over. Subdue it and rule over. Very important words in Hebrew. The first one is the Hebrew word kabash, where we get kibosh. Rule over, subdue, make that thing you're subduing subject to you. So that thing is a servant to you. And if that sounds cruel, like a cruel thing to do to the earth, you've probably never like planted your own garden from an untilled plot of land before. Like it takes some aggressive uh, undoing of the earth to subdue it. And so to put it under you is what that means. And then rada is rule over. To put it under and then rule over. Rada is also a royal term. Kings and queens ruled over with rada. Right? So God put us over creation to rule as kings and queens. And if your perception of the monarchies of this world is that they're all cruel, self-interested, that, that they don't really care about their subjects, and you're going to have a view of this commandment from God that, that is hierarchical and harmful. That's not what God's going for here. God says, rule over my creation like kings and queens. But implied in that, because we've just been made in God's image two verses before this, implied in that is that we should rule as God rules, not with coercion or manipulation or fear or abuse, but with gentleness, respect, and love, steadfastness, faithfulness. That's the kind of kings and queens over creation God created us to be. So that is the uh, Christian why. And I think, in my opinion, this is the most uplifting, optimistic vision that the world needs to know that we talk about the least. How often do we say the reason humans are responsible for creation is because God saw something in us and God sees something in you. You're not responsible over creation because he hates you or he's mad at you. You're responsible over creation because he loves you. He recognizes himself in you. Like how much do people need to hear that kind of positive, uplifting message? He can equip you and empower you to be a good steward over creation. That's a beautiful message. Too often Christians shy away from it for some reason. I don't know. 
why. Now let's look at the secular response to this same what statement. We are responsible, the secularists would agree, humans are responsible for the earth, but why? Well, we're responsible because we made this mess. We made this mess. It's like a you broke it, you buy it policy, but on a planetary scale. (laughs) And there's a lot of pressure. You're responsible solely because we messed this place up. And so it's our mess to clean up. And this actually makes sense because I can speak to this as someone who used to be a part of this this secular movement of of environmentalism. It's very (laughs) shame-filled. It's a very hopeless place where everybody's wagging their fingers at each other and pointing the finger of blame at someone else and shaming others and, and, and throwing others under the bus. There's not a lot of hope or optimism there at all. I mean, the going favorite mantra for the secular environmental movement right now is Greta Thunberg's, how dare you, which is a perfect synopsis of the, of the vibe of the movement. And it's also, uh, I think, a reason why this movement will never work. Look, celebrities in private jets flying all over the world, pointing their fingers at other people for ruining the earth, is never going to compel billions or millions even of people to care. That kind of finger pointing, sanctimoniousness, you know, I'm better than you, that kind of thing will never motivate people to change their lives, their habits, their heart. And so we have to learn uh, how to speak to the the God-given desire to be responsible for creation and for for the earth. I think that's what makes Christianity so unique. We're responsible because we're made in his image. We're godly, not because we're guilty. It's the godliness in us that leads us to be responsible, not the guilt. It's beautiful. We should say it more often. The third what, where we all agree, Christians and non-Christians alike, is that the earth is being destroyed. I think we can all agree on this. Even Christians will confess, even even Christians that are slow to accept, you know, the climate change um, movement, all right, would say, yeah, the earth is struggling. It's not the first time the earth has struggled, but the earth, sure, is always struggling to, you know, cope with, with human innovation and technology. Okay, that's fair enough. Um, some Christians do go too far with that and will say, well, all that's part of God's plan. Like the Bible says the earth's going to burn up in a fiery ball, and so we're just helping. Like I reject that. We have to reject that wholeheartedly. Look, God's will be done, and God will do God's will, right? Uh, he doesn't need our help like heating up the planet. Like, just, let's be stewards. Like he says in Scripture again and again, be good stewards, be careful, be kings and queens as he is, ruling with gentleness, respect, etc. right? So for Christians, um, the why is important. The, the reason why in the Christian worldview that the world is suffering is because of sin, which sounds like a cop-out to anyone who's not in with Christianity. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, sure, it's not fossil fuels, it's sin. Okay, okay, like it sounds like it sounds like the easy way out. Like if you just go to church more, then God will take care of the earth magically. That's not it. So think of it that way is to miss the point entirely. I mean, look, if you, if you wanna open your Bible, this is a longer passage, so it'd be worth your time to open it, uh, to Romans chapter eight. 
What you're going to see in Romans chapter 8 is really, really important. What you'll see in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 19, is this understanding that our fractured relationship with God has ramifications outside of us. It's not just souls that are lost because of sin. The ripple effect ripples throughout creation itself. The fracturing we see of the earth itself is due to our fractured relationship with God. And Paul himself, I'm not making this up, like it's not just a convenient argument for today. Paul said it 2,000 years ago. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. So for God to do his thing with his children and rise up his church, his people, the whole creation is waiting for that because the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. And the hope that the creation, every time the creation, the creation, the creation, it's talking about the earth, the created things. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation, there it is again, has been groaning, suffering, struggling, as in pains of childbirth right up to this present time, not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Y'all, the biblical message of salvation has always been about more than just our immaterial souls. It's not just a narrative or a story that leads our souls to be able to escape the created order one day and go to heaven and float in the sky. No, God cares about stuff, about the material world, about the created things. And the fullness of his salvation won't look like a spiritual escape away from the created order, but a recreation, an upgrade if you will. Revelation chapter 21 says God isn't just going to dis uh, uh, dispose of the earth, but he's going to remake it even more beautiful and glorious than before. And so, in, out of respect for that very fact, Christians are called to take care of what we have in front of us, including our bodies, including the world that we call home, right? So that's how Christians conceive of the brokenness or the destruction being done in our planet. What's the secular answer to this? What's the secular why? Well, the earth is being destroyed because of fossil fuel consumption and carbon emissions, obviously, right? That's what the secularists would typically say. Overconsumption might be another way to put that. And here's where things get interesting because we're in the energy capital of the world. More than half my church, probably in some ways, <laughs> depends on the oil and gas industry. So I was checking myself all week, making sure I wasn't letting any bias get in the way. I'm sure if I said certain things, I might get, you know, a little more money in the offering or something. I don't know. But it's not worth it to compromise on truth. At the same time, I think we have to be holistic and honest. Because to just say that this one sector of... You know, the economy or, or our world is responsible for everything, as opposed to sin, which we all share in, which we're all responsible for. It's just this one sector, this one part of the world, this one part of the economy, this, you know, mostly white, Western, uh, you'll often hear a colonial kind of uh, consumption-based mentality that has led to the destruction of this planet. I, I do understand the temptation to believe that. I used to believe that very thing. But I lacked understanding. I lacked perspective. I lacked 
uh, reality of the notion that to sit in comfortably air-conditioned rooms and complain <laughs> about fossil fuels ruining the planet um, is uh, to be willfully ignorant and incredibly entitled. It's also to miss out on the fact that historically speaking, if you look at all the quality of life trends throughout human history, it's hard to make a case for any other human innovation making more of a, making more of a, of a, of a progress in the, in the support of human life and human flourishing than technologies around energy have, right? So we have to at least consider if we, if we treasure life, if we value human flourishing above all else, at least consider that maybe God, like, maybe he intended for us to find that stuff underground. Maybe it wasn't like some big mistake. My son even asked, is that why he made the dinosaurs? I was like, I don't know, maybe. Like, <laughs> who knows what he was thinking? But I, I, I think God wants us to flourish. I think God wants uh, human beings to not, you know, starve to death or freeze to death. And until you've known what that's like, uh, sometimes we have to check our entitlement before we speak with any wisdom on these uh, topics, okay? So the secular why is often too simplistic and too uh, pointed at one uh, group or one issue rather than seeing all of us as complicit uh, like the Christian worldview would. And finally, there's, four, uh, there's a fourth statement that I think we can all agree on uh, to a certain extent. I almost didn't include this one. The, the fourth one and finally is that there's still a little hope. The reason I almost uh, waffled on this one is because I'm hearing less and less hope from the secular side on uh, the climate crisis. But for Christians, uh, we believe there's hope because God restores. That's who God is. He restores and he will restore. And not just our souls, but our bodies and not just our bodies, but the creation will be restored by our Savior. Why? Because in Christ, what we have is not just a religious figure. We have a Savior who deals with sin. And if we finally at last have a Savior who deals with our sin, then the effects of sin will one day be diminished to nothing. That is why we have hope. Paul put it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over creation. And listen to what Paul says about all things and their relationship to Christ. All things. He says, all things were created in Christ, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in Christ, so we're talking about Christ, all things hold together. Did you hear Paul say that all things were created for Christ? That means Christ delights in the creation. Christ delights in the earth. It was made for him. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have his fullness dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile to himself all Christians. Wait, nope, nope, you look close. All things reconciled to God in Christ, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. The biblical view here is that God's plan has always been to bring redemption to more than just a few people, but to redeem the very creation itself. Everything that you love about this place, this planet we call home, will be redeemed, restored, not only to its former glory, but to something even more 
glorious. It reminds me of that song that we sang just before this sermon, because of Christ, I am alive. It's because of Christ that we have hope, all right? Now, the secular view of hope is a little more dim at this point. The secularist might say, we have hope because I have the answers, <laughs> or we have hope uh, because we have what it takes. And it sounds like it's hopeful because it's about the answers, right? It's not quite that hopeful in actuality. What, what this usually means is, yeah, we have a little hope if you do what I say, if you all believe that my solutions are the solutions, right? We have the plan, even if it means destroying, you know, a lot of the tools and like the economy that have led to greater human flourishing. We have to diminish those things. We have to discourage young people from having babies, which is the worst advice. You can tell to young people not have families, not have babies. They give our, our world hope. They give us reason to Remember, innocence and purity at its best. So there, there is undoubtedly this greater agenda at work in the secular environmental movement that we have to be real careful to parse out from the truth. The desire to make the earth better is God-given. And Christians should, by all means, be doing more. More to watch our consumption and more to make sure we're modeling responsible stewardship for the rest of the world around us. And we fail to do that all the time. And we fail to talk about these things in meaningful ways, but that doesn't, doesn't mean we have to give in entirely to what the world says about these issues either. But this uh, kind of mentality on the secular side about we have the answers and you do it ourselves, I think that's why so much of it is fear-based. I talked about this earlier, how it actually reminds me of growing up in the left-behind days. Y'all, I've been hearing alarm bells from environmentalists my whole life. And I say this with all respect to the movement, but I've heard in 15 years, we won't have enough food. And there's way more food now than ever, even as the population has increased. I've heard in 10 years, we'll have no more water. Um, Technologies have allowed us and continue to allow us to make a way for more water. I keep hearing, you know, more recently, in 12 years, the world's going to end, one leader of this movement said, if we don't do something about climate change. In 12 years, the world's going to end. Y'all, that was the Left Behind series in the 90s, <laughs> except it was 2012 at that point and not in 12 years. And this kind of thing is just irresponsible, fear-mongering, Shaming, whether you're a sidewalk preacher, whether you're a climate change enthusiast, this kind of manipulation will never serve the truth. You cannot scare someone out of hell and into heaven, and you can't scare someone to the point of caring about creation. That's why for Christians, it all comes back to God and his goodness and to love. Because this God who is good is also love. That's why Jesus said the most important commandments he could ever give us are to love God and to love our neighbors. I know people who claim to love the earth but hate their neighbors, to love creation but hate humanity. This is impossible. And the only way to love the created order in a sustained way over the long haul is to fall in love with your neighbor first. 
And if you struggle with this, and if you're a Christian who has decided just to throw up your hands because who even knows what to do about the climate, I encourage you to spend this evening before you go to bed praying for God to show you how to love who he puts in front of you, how to love your neighbor. And if you can grow in Christian love to model the love of God for yourself, your spouse, your children, your impact on their generation and their children's generation and their children's generation will reverberate not only through their souls and through their lives, but through the earth itself. Learning to love like Christ is the best thing we can do for the world in which we live. So to wrap up today, I'll say um, with all the love in my heart with all the energy I have left, <clears throat> that the Bible's answer to this <laughs> controversial claim is absolute. It is clear. It is absolutely true that Christians should care about climate change, should care about the created order. Uh, although we should be careful about some of the things I've talked about today, this couldn't be more clear. And I want to congratulate y'all because this is the first time in five weeks that the Bible's answer has lined up with yours <laughs> from, from the congregational survey. So praise God for that. Would y'all pray with me? <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this uh, place, this earth we call home. Thank you for providing this earth for us. <clears throat> thank you for the mountains and for the seas, the animals and the water, plants that grow, rains that fall, your sustenance, your provision. Thank you, Lord, for all the ways you've allowed us to <clears throat> make a home here, for all the technologies that have allowed us to flourish here. Forgive us for taking your provision for granted so often here. May we wake up tomorrow morning a little more grateful than we woke up today, a little more full of love for you, love for our neighbors, and in turn, may we wake up a little more grateful and full of love for your creation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.